Welcome to MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Technology and Resources for NMVVRC, and with me today is Ann Seymour. Ann is one of the lead consultants for the National Mass Violence Center and a longtime victim advocate. Welcome, Ann. I'm delighted to be here, Dr. Dan. <laughs> Great. I'm delighted to have you. Uh, what we're going to be talking about today is something that I know is near and dear to your heart, mm. and that is uh, guidelines for victims of mass violence for dealing with requests related to media appearances, interviews, and so forth. Uh, what kinds of activities have you been involved in with the center related to those kinds of things? Well, uh, historically, almost since I got into the victims field, um, I have really worked uh, closely and devoted a lot of my professional energies to helping uh, promote responsible media coverage of crime victims. It, it's awesome. just a, it's a, it's a lot there's a lot of problems that people can have if the media aren't aware of victim trauma and if victims are not aware of how the media work. The thing I love about the center is that um, they're developing just some excellent guidelines for crime survivors. And I want to add for those who serve them, whether it's victim assistance professionals, um, therapists like yourself, so that we can ensure that victims have, to the degree possible, a sense of control and autonomy over their interactions with the news media. Um, and also, it's so important for them to be able to to talk about what happened to them if they choose to, to sure. talk about what happened. And that, that concept of autonomy is, is pretty important. And I've actually been through trainings with you years and years ago uh, <laughs> okay. about uh, how to interact with media and so forth. And one of the things that I'm wondering about is whether or not the guidelines that that the center is putting out for victims of mass violence incidents are different from guidelines for regular old crime if there is yeah. such a thing yeah. i mean those kinds of events are pretty quantitatively right. and qualitatively different how does that affect interactions with the media it, you know, it, it's almost night and day, and the guidelines that we wrote in 86 and, and updated, we've updated them frequently, were not all applicable to mass violence victims. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what some of the, the major differences are. As a mass violent crime is occurring, the media find out about it. It's mm -hmm. super easy to find out. And the media show up it's often. It's on Twitter. It's yeah. on Twitter. It's online. They're following the police, whatever, blogger. They're getting sure. the information from the police. And I, I haven't responded to a mass violence incident where the media were, preceded me there. And I'm, you know, I'm a victim advocate um, who's supposed to be there first. And so you're going and you're trying to set up a response center and victims are sometimes emerging from the scene of the horrific mass crime, very traumatized, and the media are there. And so the, the sense that we say that victims should have autonomy and choice at the point when the mass violence um, crime is occurring you can yeah. throw that out the window. I, I would have to agree. I mean, yeah. having worked with lots of folks who've either been mass violence victims or, or even not mass in the immediate aftermath, that's no time to be sticking a microphone in someone's yeah. face. It's very difficult when people are quite literally contemplating their own mortality mm -hmm. and right. wondering how they got out of this exactly. awful situation alive. They're not actually paying a lot of attention, are they, to 
is this something I want to do? Yeah. Uh, is this, uh, have I thought through what I would want to communicate yeah. to the media about what just happened to me? Someone saying, how do you feel? Yeah. What was it like in there? <laughs> I mean, the questions that they ask are are, are so are so inappropriate. And you raise a, a good question. You've just dealt with mortality and you have seen people killed. That's the level of what we're talking about. Mm. Um, you can't make a, a conscious choice mm-hmm. to speak to someone. So that's why we try to teach the media and they're willing willing students about victim trauma and why that kind of behavior is something that should be avoided at all costs. I think one of the other, I mean, is sort of a logical follow-up to the kinds of things you're talking about with media being present is there are film and photographic media that are being recorded live. I mean, it's sometimes streaming on the internet. It's sometimes being broadcast over CNN or local news. Um, And there are images of victims or perhaps even deceased individuals being broadcast over the airwaves. And it's not something that anyone had the ability to consent to or say, yes, this is an okay image of me to use. How does that factor in? I, I think it's super traumatizing to a survivor who was already traumatized. And, you know, I know that people aren't thinking about it, but think about the loops that you see over and over again, that same image of the students running out of Columbine, of the people leaping from the, 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 the towers in, in New York City. And I don't want to get into some of these other awful visuals. Sure. The victims have no choice that they're being portrayed that way. The, the viewers have no choice that they're being exposed am I right? to overexposed yeah, exactly. to really traumatic footage. And I think it's disturbing to the victim. But as a viewing member of the viewing public, it's freaking disturbing to yeah. me. It just is. No, that reminds me. I am... I, I, um, did some live local TV the night of 9-11, and oh. I'm sitting there on TV yeah. <laughs> responding to people who were calling in saying, I just I can't get these images out of my head. I, yeah. you know, and it, I just found it amazingly ironic that there I was on live TV telling people, turn your television off. Don't um, listen don't, to me. Don't, don't watch interview. this. Please just yeah. like, go do something normal yeah. and, and not... Uh, not expose yourself to any more of this. We, we become inured to it. And I Absolutely. worry that with mass violence events happening pretty close to on a daily basis, mm-hmm. de- depending on your definition of mass violence, mm-hmm. that we will become insensitive to the impact of these horrific crimes on just many, many individuals, but also communities. And so that's why, you know, having a, a, just a good discussions with the media and victim assistance professionals, mental health professionals like yourself, um, having conversations in advance is really important. Okay. And I know that uh, one of the main things that you've been doing on this trip to Charleston is helping the center craft some guidelines and tip sheets mm-hmm. to promulgate and to, to put out for uh, public consumption, for, for folks to, to read about, to learn about, in case they are, they find themselves in a situation where they're a mass violence victim, um, what are some of the the sort of key highlights of the tip sheets and and the recommendations that the center is making? Well, um, 
I want to talk about, I'm going to talk today about tips for victims, but the, the cool thing about the center is they're also writing um, tips for working with the media for victim assistance professionals, mental right. health professionals who assist victims. And so, it's and we all a, need those. And everyone needs those. And it's important that we, we can help victims uh, regain a, a sense of control by also being aware of, good, of the importance of good relations with the, with the media. So mm-hmm. um, I think the most important thing for victims is to know they do not have to do it alone, that there are victim assistance professionals and support people, the person of their choice who can go with them, accompany them to media media interviews, and to do things that make them feel comfortable, Um, recognizing also that the victim ought to be able to to pick the date and the time and the location of the interview, to be able to perhaps wear a T-shirt that commemorates the event or a loved one who has been lost, things that give them a sense of of comfort and control um, over the interview. It should go without saying, but we say it anyhow, that Mm -hmm. victims should expect to be treated um, with respect uh, by by the news media. And recognize, um, and you can probably say more about this, that doing a media interview for some victims can be very traumatic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of factors that determine um, how upsetting uh, a a mass violence incident or some other kind of trauma is. And one of the main symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is being distressed whenever you're reminded of the event. I mean, that's sort of a cardinal hallmark feature of post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's basically what a media interview is going to do. It's going to be saying, so tell me about what happened. Think about what happened. Remember what it was like. And all of those kinds of questions, all of those kinds of prompts uh, are cues for trauma symptoms, um, unpleasant memories, and they can be extraordinarily distressing to to victims. And I want you to go lecture every journalist in the world because... You, you hit the nail on the head, and we're asking them to relieve, just relive a horribly traumatic experience. And if journalists understood that, like just you just explained it, well, it's there beautiful. is there is this sort of misinformation out there that uh, instantaneously debriefing after uh, an event uh, is somehow therapeutic, and actually there's there's some notion that forcing people to do that is helpful, and in fact it's the opposite of helpful. Uh, it can be highly distressing. It can, as you as you've pointed out, the uh, importance of autonomy and choice. Right. If I don't choose to talk about this right now, that is my choice, mm-hmm. and making me do it may just compound the symptoms that I'm feeling. Yeah. You you are exactly right, and again, hit the hit the nail on the head. Um, I think also for victims who want to get a message out to the media but are not able to do so for a lot of really good reasons, that they understand that they can select a spokesperson or an advocate of their choice to speak to the media. Um, And we advise victims also to don't just send the person out to speak, but tell them the message that you want out, any boundaries um, and things that you don't want discussed so they can accurately um, represent you. Similarly, you can release a written statement or Mm -hmm. an oral statement with the technology today. It's very easy to get a recording out. We want to make it easier for victims who don't want FaceTime, who don't want their photo taken. Very many of them, they still feel that they have a way to to get their their voice out. Yeah, I would think it. For, for some victims in particular, it would be extraordinarily intimidating to sort of have a, a member of the media question you or yeah. ask you about things. I, I mean, I, even if the media member had the best training and was 
doing the most conscientious job possible, there are questions that may seem confrontational right. or may seem to uh, express doubt or right. ask for clarification about something or that appear to victim blame or be judgmental. To, I mean, exactly, yeah. and uh, that to me would be a a concern about not wanting to do media. And so I think this point about either having a spokesperson who conveys what you want to say, a written statement, or even like you pointed out, a recording. I mean, nowadays, most phones have audio recorders. That's right. right. Um, And uh, you could, you can get out a message like that. I think that's a great tip. Or, or, and I really encourage them, um, not because it's my job, but (laughs) to, to have a victim advocate or a person like you, a support person who can be there and, uh, and stop an interview and not mm-hmm. in a rude way, but just say that that, you know, that question um, makes me feel uncomfortable. I mean, the victims need to know that just because a question is asked doesn't mean that they have to answer it. And so anything we can do to, to give them a, a, a greater sense of control over mm-hmm. the, the, the situation. What you just said, Anne, really sort of brings to mind an issue that we haven't really talked about and haven't touched on. You were talking about the importance of having a support person, uh, someone there to maybe be a buffer or or hold your hand or set some limits on what gets asked. What about a situation in which the victim kind of requires that because Mm -hmm. maybe they're a minor Mm -hmm. or uh, someone who's too young to really kind of make those choices about autonomy? Um, what What are some of your thoughts about whether very young victims of violence should be doing media. So I feel very strongly about this, and there are many people who disagree with me, so that's my uh, my caveat. I do not think that children, um, and I think in a lot of cases adolescents, should, not, should be interviewed, especially if they are traumatized, especially following mass violence incidents. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. Kids cannot make a decision to be interviewed like do you want to go on ABC do you want to be seen on the internet they can't that's, right, that's not it's not in their there's sort of a conflict there about ooh fame but it's not yeah. quite what maybe they think of it yeah and and they they can't make that conscious mm-hmm. choice the other thing and you're such more, more expert in that is that children's exposure to trauma how they are processing it mm-hmm. They do not have the skills that adults have, and sometimes adult skills mm-hmm. aren't so good. So a children in the aftermath yep. might be really, really freaked out. The thing that, that concerns me a lot about that, I mean, other than, I mean, I agree completely that the emotional impact is very difficult to predict yeah. with young people. Right. Some kids really don't seem to be phased by it. Other kids mm-hmm. just freeze, or if they say something that isn't exactly right, uh, later they feel terrible about it. They, oh, I didn't say that the right way. And it sort of just sticks with them in ways that it probably doesn't with adults. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I worry about, and, and this is true of everyone really, but I think it's particularly true of, of kids, is they might end up, because of their sort of limited ability to make sense out of what happened, they might end up saying something that isn't really 100% factually accurate. It might just be their perception of what happened. And uh, another person who was there might say, whoa, that's not what happened. And and those kinds of public incorrect statements right. or statements may interfere with um, a law enforcement prosecution mm-hmm. or public perception of what happened at the event. So 
like you, I, I have a lot of caveats uh, and concerns about interviewing young people. Um, I also have concerns about grown-ups being interviewed and bringing their kids in tow with them to mm. the interviews. I, I was telling you before about an experience I had here in South Carolina um, following the Susan Smith incident, which Tragic. for those of you who don't remember is, is a mom who mm. um, murdered her two small children um, by putting them in the back of the car and, and pushing it into a lake. Mm. And throughout the small town in South Carolina where that happened, the news media as we've talked about, even though it was not technically a mass violence incident and it was absolutely horrific, media descended on, on Union, South Carolina, and they were walking around the streets interviewing citizens on the street, and moms were out with their small children and toddlers and picking them up and being interviewed about this mom who murdered her children. Oh. And the kids were right there <laughs> listening to mom talk. And I just kept thinking, ah, that is terrible environment. I mean, kids don't need to be hearing their mom, mom talk and about murder this. Right. in the same sentence. Exactly. And oh I just gosh. I just kept sitting there thinking you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. I think it made for probably, you know, good TV. Oh, sure. But uh I, I worried at the time about the impact on those kids. Well, and, and I appreciate that. And it, I mean, to me, that why it is sort of my hard, fast golden rule is to mm. ex- exclude children from interviews. And a lot of parents, like, you know, they're not going to take you without your kid. Then then fine. Don't mm-hmm. do the interview. Make a choice that is, is not going to harm your child. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, a golden piece of advice. Speaking of which, are there, are there other tips that uh, you wanted to, to get out to folks? Well, we, we have 21 chips in total, but we don't have enough time to, to go over all of them. Are we up them, to number but, three? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I'm just going to say in general, the most important thing is that we do everything we can to respect and reflect the survivor's wishes related to media interview. And that's why having a support person or a spokesperson, someone who can guide them through the process is really, really important so that they know that they have choices. In Mm -hmm. addition to having a voice, you have a choice on whether you want to do any or all of this. You have a choice as to what journalist you want to speak to. You can talk to one journalist, even refuse to talk to one, even if you've spoken to him before. That was so that was going to be my next question, which is, so I'm a victim. I've done one interview with Channel 5. Right. And then Channel 3 yeah. calls and says, okay, we, you're good on camera. Uh, <laughs> talk to us too. Yeah. You're saying that the victim shouldn't feel any obligation no. to talk to no. everybody under the sun. The victim has to do their own self-pulse check and see how they're feeling at any given time. And as you know, in the aftermath of any crime, but in particular a mass violence incident, that there are going to be highs and lows and ups and downs. They may be on camera, fabulous, ready to go, and literally two minutes later in a, in a state of, of high level of trauma and, mm-hmm. and dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So it's up to the victim and hopefully a support person to help them make those decisions. It's up to the media to respect those decisions. Okay. and that, So that was another question I had. I mean, I think the stereotype of the the reporter. I mean, I, and I, I'm one to talk because the stereotypes of psychologists and mental health professionals in the media is absolutely terrible. But I mean, I think the stereotype of, of reporters that you see in in movies and TV shows is that they're sort of unscrupulous, yeah. get the story at all costs. Um, I don't care if you're 
uh, emotionally scarred by this experience. As long as I have a headline, I'm good. Is that really your experience dealing with the media? I, you know, and I've worked just diligently with the news media, specifically on how they cover crime and victimization my entire career, which I'm aging myself 35 years. My experience is that the vast majority of um, journalists are indeed responsible and they want to get the story right. They want they want to be accurate. I think the level of intensity with mass violence incidents that did not occur when I began, they just weren't occurring back in, in 1984, the level and the intensity and the frequency which with mm-hmm. th- these things are occurring has changed um, has changed reporting, changed some of the rules. And, and I stand by most reporters are responsible. And I know my work with victims, they'll say this, uh, the headline was sensational. Well, that's the headline writer right. that the editor right. approved. It had nothing to do with the reporter. Um, someone on camera who didn't like the fact that they thought their face wasn't going to be shown. Well, that might be the producer at the television. Choice, yeah. So understanding um, the hierarchy of both print and broadcast media, which are included in our guidelines, is very important. And I would encourage you, Dr. Dan, and the center to also do a podcast upcoming one on social media that's a whole nother bailiwick we're, and we're a whole always nother, looking for topics it's a can of worms because of the um the propensity of social media to put out a lot of information that is not accurate which Correct. is really really harmful to victims so our tips i want to be clear are really for um, broadcast and news journalists sure okay social media is a different animal oh. and i like that idea i think we'll oh. be looking for that with excellent well you've been listening to the mass violence podcast the official podcast of the national mass violence victimization resource center with me today has been ann seymour she's been dropping gems of knowledge about victims and interacting with the media And uh, thank you, Anne. We really appreciate your time while you're here. And uh, I think you've got a soccer game that you want to go watch. So Ah, go USA. um, Go USA, absolutely. And thanks very much for listening. Thanks to the center. 